magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host, Warwick Schiller, and you know, every once in a while I get people suggest that I have a certain person on the podcast, and I'd say that uh, my guest today, who's a horseman from Canada named Josh Nickel, I have had probably at least as many requests to have Josh on here as I've had anybody else. And Josh is Josh does what he calls relational-based horsemanship, which is really what I'm into these days, and he's been doing it for a lot longer than me. And so I'm really quite uh, interested in getting Josh on here and asking him, you know, I mean, I know how I got to this point and it's happened rather recently, but I think Josh has been doing it for a whole lot longer than I have. So I'm really interested in getting Josh on here and finding out his journey to where he feels that relationship-based training is the way to go. So let's get Josh Nickel on the line. Josh Nickel, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm, I'm excited you're here. You know, we've never met. This is actually the first time we've spoken. And you're one of those guys that, I don't know, as my journey's gone along a bit, your name keeps popping up. People uh, say, hey, you need to look up this guy. You need huh. to look up this guy. So I've watched, uh, I've watched a bit of your stuff and uh-huh. it's like, uh, yeah, well, the, I think what I really want to know over this conversation is pretty much how I'm not saying I'm not saying we're teaching the, the same exact same things, but mm-hmm. I, I think we're heading. I'm heading in the same direction you're already mm-hmm. in, I think. Mm-hmm. But I, what I want to get to is how does someone end up there? So mm-hmm. tell me, tell me where where let's hear the Josh Nichols story. Where did you uh, yeah. how did you get into all this stuff? Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a uh... It's kind of an interesting story, I guess. We, I was actually born in Northern Ontario, and my dad was a logger, so we had very little to do with kind of the traditional ranching community. And my mom always loved horses, so we always had horses around, but we really lived up in the middle of nowhere. And my my family was very very connected to nature and uh, you know life with animals, and we didn't have a TV. Um, you know, we didn't have any kind of technological advancements in our home and we spent most of our time outside, um, being up in Northern Ontario, um, there was lots of varieties of animals and yeah, we just got to engage in life and that really set kind of a cool tone for us of not really, I guess it created an opportunity to connect a little differently. Um, my dad, um, there was some changes in the mill and my dad ended up losing his job there and then got a job in Alberta. And then we moved out here. And that, uh, that was a big change for us because that was, I guess that would have been when I was 12, I guess. And uh, at that point, you know, we had horses and I spent a lot of time with them, but we never even considered training a horse or anything like that. It was just a matter of being with them, right? We would ride and we would do things, but it was very much so about just kind of being with them. Um, when we were out in the trees and, you know, uh, around animals, it was always kind of fun to envision trying to get close to them 
and experiencing them. And those were just some of the things that, that I guess pulled me, you know, I wasn't, uh, uh, yeah, I was always intrigued by, by watching and connecting with them, but not necessarily, um, scaring them or whatever. So, uh, yeah, that, that kind of set a tone for me. And then when we came to Alberta man, Alberta's just bumping with training horses and the horse industry and, uh, life with, with that kind of focus. And so we started seeing people that are doing that and I was just boggled by it. Just the whole concept of, of that. And, uh, um, first couple of years was just hanging around with some horses that we had, we had to actually sell everything when we moved to Alberta, we, we had to restart hundred percent. And, uh, that was a bit of a challenging piece because we had to say goodbye to our horse family that we had there. And, um, slowly over time, we, we got a few, a few horses here and, um, you know, I was really lucky enough to, to get started with some pretty neat people. Um, lady by the name of Deb Bennett was, uh, actually doing a clinic, uh, in the Cochrane area. So it's Southern Alberta. Dr. Deb Bennett. Yes. Yeah. The Dr. Deb Bennett. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's uh she is an, an amazing person. She is a genius and I think she has a photographic memory and the level of knowledge that she has about the history of horsemanship. It, it's just ridiculous. And, and so I went to her clinic and I had, we didn't have a trailer, so we didn't bring a horse, but I was able to get on a horse there. And this was kind of an older mare that, you know, nobody was wanting to ride. So I was uh, thankful that I got to use her in the clinic. And honestly, it was hilarious because I was just trying to do whatever Deb told me. You know, she asked me to do this or that. And I tried and I think I actually fell off at one point. And, you know, and it was just exciting because I was just totally showing up. You know, I was just excited about the concepts of it. And afterwards, I would follow her back to the house just talking to her just and she she just she has so much knowledge it's not even funny you know so she just started talking and we talk and talk and talk and by the end of it um before we left she said to my parents that uh if you don't if you don't do something with him you're stupid and if you know deb she she can be a little bit like that and uh, that can sometimes be um easier hard for people but she's she's so so desires you know um to know and get the horses. But um, anyways, she, so then she said, there's a couple of people you need to go and see. Um, and uh, there was about five guys on that list. And uh, Tom Dorrance was the first one. And uh, so I, that fall, actually, my parents and I, we, we just went down to Elko. Tom was doing a clinic down there and it was right at the end of his deal. He wasn't doing much by that point and, and went down to Elko and, and watched and got to meet Tom and hang out there and, it was awesome. You know, I, uh, it was hilarious. Uh, as Tom was, I was pretty, I was pretty driven. Um, and I wasn't very shy. So I, as soon as Tom was done, I, I ran up to him and, and I said, you know, I'd like to come ride with you. Like, what do I got to do to apprentice with you? You know, and he's, he's in his early eighties, you know, it's just ridiculous that anyways. Um, and he laughed and said, you know, he's, and that wasn't really taking anybody on at the moment. And, um, so it was just great. You know, I, I got to meet Tom there and, uh, learned a lot, you know, it's just so, just his way is so empowering and impacting to you when you hear how he's going about things, you know, and that was really, that was really big for me. Um, met some guys from, uh, that were cowboy in there in, in Nevada. And, uh, actually the next summer I went back to that ranch that they were working at and started, started horses. Um, and I guess I would have been 16 and that was awesome because I didn't know what I was doing, but I was, but I was excited to try and, that was really good to kind of help me understand what I, what I didn't know. 
And at 16, that was just a really great start. So I, I was doing my best to try to figure things out and got a few horses to kind of come around and, and uh, a bunch of others that taught me a lot um, about how much I had to, to learn. Um, from there, I, I ended up actually hooking up with Harry Whitney. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about, about the, the desires of Harry to understand and connect with horses. Um, and uh, showed up at Harry's clinic and he was sitting down with a round pen. And everyone was up in the crowd and I grabbed a chair and I went and sat right beside him. And started watching and asking questions and talking and and uh, I think it was within the first couple of minutes you know I was just so enamored by all of the ways and the things because it was also new to me you know of uh, what to do with the horses and um, I asked him you know within not very long if there's anything I can do to help you know if you need me to get in there and do anything for you or you know um, anyways I was in it wasn't and I don't know if Deb talked to him they still still told me that but. Anyways, within just a couple of minutes, Harry had me in the round pen and he was kind of, I was trying to be in his hands, I guess. And we were working with a young horse. And um, after the date clinic ended, um, I said, man, if I can travel with you, if there's anything I can do to come and learn. And yeah, he, he took me on. He said I could. So over the next, I don't know, I guess three years, I ended up traveling with him for about a year. And I just sleep wherever and back of his horse trailer or wherever I could. to. And then I just tried to take in as much as I could. I got on as many horses as I possibly could in the clinics and um, learned as much as I could from him. And, and I, I just can't speak highly enough about the base that built in me to desire getting horses. Um, Harry and Tom were, were pretty good friends. So I ended up inadvertently getting to hang out with Tom as well. And, you know, I was just at that stage in my life, I was just kind of there and, and I just got to spend time with those boys. And so there was a lot of people I got to meet through Harry and his kind of graciousness to have me just cart along. I was just a, a punk kid, I guess, but um, he just was so willing and, and that set a real tone for me. So with this desire for me to kind of understand how to connect with animals, plus getting to hang out with some guys like that at a real early stage, it, it set a tone in me to, to seek, to seek something deeper with the horses. And, um, yeah. So then when I came back to Alberta, I had, I had no, well, I guess when I traveled with Harry, I, I traveled all over North America and I met lots of people and, um, when I came back, I had no desire to work with horses. I was just wanting to get it myself. And um, it didn't take too long. And I started training for the public and slowly starting to help people. And then I guess the rest is history. In the process, I've tried to do my best to keep learning and uh, worked with some some classical um, masters and uh, some uh, other kind of California style. So the, the Hackamore work up into the bridle. And then the classical work and then mixing that all in with trying to get a relational heart behind everything. And those two pieces have really set a tone for my, my life. Um, yeah, now I, my, my constant desire, it's the reason I kind of call my deal a horseman's pursuit is because I'm, I want to, I want to understand the horses and understand what it means to be in true relationship with them. And I also want to understand what it means to be, to have a great working relationship with them. So I've worked at ranches all over and I, I still do. And, um, you know, want to understand what it means to retain that relationship, but yet, but yet get the horses to use their bodies the way they were made um, and not in confinement or restriction, um, but to bring out the best in them. And uh, so then that's in and of that, that's caused me to dive into my own personal journey because I learned really quick that, that what was going on in me affected the horses deeply and the best that was happening in me was, was, was what I could get out of them or it limited them because of my vision and my sight. So there was a real personal growth side and, 
Um, and that just seems that folks have been intrigued by what I'm doing and I, I've just started to share that. And I guess the rest is history. And and that's how you popped up on my radar. Um, yes, it sounds like you were kind of set up for the whole thing. You had that, uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot of uh, books and met people who were around, mm, uh, you may call them shamans, you may mm-hmm. not, some of them were shamans, mm-hmm. but it seems to be they have this, there's one piece in there. There's an older mentor mm-hmm. and they're spending lots of time in mm-hmm. nature observing mm-hmm. something yeah. about that, that, that does something mm-hmm. to a person that mm-hmm. then does lots of other stuff. But it seems like there's, that's such a common thread in, yeah. in people who end up with some, some uncommon insight, you might say. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I would say, yeah, that's, it's funny, right? You know, you have this, you have this general desire to connect and then you have certain influential people at certain times that, yeah, they just empower it. Um, I remember there was a time when I was early after I had been riding with Harry and I was chatting with Deb and I had said something to her. This is so impacting to me. Um, I had said something to her that I, that I felt like I was starting to come up with very intriguing ideas about horses and the relationship with them that was, you know, not necessarily different, but was, was kind of unique. And she said to me, I've been waiting for this. And it, it, it blew my mind. It was, it was so exciting because it was almost as if she was encouraging the uniqueness of thinking and the uniqueness to draw deeper rather than just to conform to the technique and the style, you know, not just, boy, that just set me on fire after that. I just felt like I was just hungry to get to know the horses more and learn from them and not just get them to conform to a technique, but to understand what it meant to be, to be with them and then to shape and get their desire to do the work. You know, it just, it just, it kind of lit me up. And yeah, that was, that was a, like, like you say, you know, you get those influential times where it just sets you on fire to really get going. Just listening to you, you're still lit up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I do feel pretty passionate about it. Really, yeah. I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that you know, so there's that, those two things, like that 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 outside outdoors connect with nature upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then chance meeting with Dr. Deb Bennett. So for you yeah. guys who are listening who don't know who Dr. Deb Bennett is, if you've ever seen the TV show Bones, mm. she didn't appear on Bones, but if you if you remember the TV show Bones, the lady who played Bones, whatever her name was, she is a forensic anthropologist at mm. the Smithsonian Institute. And when people find bodies, she mm-hmm. can look at the bones and tell mm-hmm. you what happened to them. Well, I believe Dr. Deb Bennett is also a forensic mm-hmm. anthropologist from mm-hmm. the Smithsonian Institute who also hung out with Tom Dorrance and Ray Hunt, who also like, she's not just one of those academics that understands this, the, like the, the, the skeletal structure of the horse. Mm-hmm. She understands the, the skeleton, the muscles, the, the ligaments, the tendons, the brain, the neural oh. pathways, the, 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 you know, the training, the, yeah, just the whole the whole bit. Yeah, I've I've never met her. I've just read mm-hmm. quite a bit of her stuff, and so that's mm-hmm. for you to to run into someone like that so early on yeah. and have that sort of an influence so early on, and then get to spend quite a bit of time with Harry Whitney. I've never mm-hmm. met Harry either. I know mm-hmm. people who know Harry, and I've read quite a bit of stuff about Harry, and it's 
reading stuff and hearing stuff about Harry is it planted seeds in my brain a long time ago that have probably just started to sprout in the last mm. few years. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all that, the stuff about the, the, you know, I was always taught, you know, like you move their feet to get to their mind sort mm-hmm. of thing. And lately these days, it's almost like I just, I just work on the mind and the feet follow the mind. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, how you said you, you, you started discovering things and Deb's like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. really cool. A lot of this stuff nowadays, I, I, I discovered it <laughs> messing with horses and especially mm. like the clinics, just experimenting with, you get so many different horses yeah. clinics. And I started to think, Hey, I, I invented that. And then I, you research and you found out yeah, other people are doing it too. And like, there's nothing is, you know, I was talking to uh, Mark Rashid the other day mm-hmm. and he got talking, I think I asked him about uh, where he got the idea from his first book. I think that's mm. what it was. And he said, oh, it just came to me out of the collective consciousness, you know. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm all over that stuff these days. But <laughs> it's kind of like that, like this. The, have you ever heard of Rupert Sheldrake? Mm, I have not. Rupert Sheldrake, uh, he's a scientist guy, but he's on the, spiritual end of the science thing Mm -hmm. and he talks about this thing called morphic resonance and one of the things he talks about i mean he's got a he's got a book called the sense of being stared at Hmm. Uh, he's got a book uh i forget what it's called but it's something to do the whole the process the whole book is basically about how your dog knows you're coming home Mm-hmm. before you get there you cool. know that whole that yeah. that all that sense stuff but he talked yeah. in that book about they did an experiment with some rats at a university in england they taught these rats to do this particular sequence of things and they documented hundreds of rats and they documented how long it took to teach these rats to do this stuff they all taught them all at the same time like let's all work on step one today and step two tomorrow all that sort of stuff and so they documented with rats basically this is how long it takes them to learn it but then they repeated the same experiment at a, a university in Australia and one here in the US, I think, and one in another country, maybe somewhere in Europe. The rest of the rats in the world took half the amount of time to learn it as the first lot of rats because it's almost like once one lot of rats have access to that <laughs> to oh. that knowledge, the other ones can pick it up easy. And it's kind of like the, all this stuff, I think, oh, I, I just discovered something yeah. on my own. <laughs> Here it pops up on Josh Nickel. He's oh, there's a YouTube video <laughs> saying the same damn thing, and I thought I discovered it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I totally hear you. I, I, it's amazing, honestly, and, and I see that you can. Almost, you're right. You see it with horsemanship today, right? There's just there's as as everybody seems to be conjuring this energy. It's it's just affecting everybody else. And uh, you know, Deb said that to, you know a long time ago. This idea that there's there's kind of these different strains of horsemanship, and and you said it when you talked about you know the difference between working the feet to get the mind. And versus working the mind to get the feet, and uh, you know that's a that's a premise to the style. You know, very very important. Um, and you know, it's not necessarily a dominance to try to get the move the body or to retain or contain the body to get the mind, but it can sure go that way. But when you're when you're working the mind to get the body, you gotta you you all of a sudden create a, a relationship that's based on er- earning them, because now you're trying to get them to understand and connect with you in a way where they present their body. And that changes this dynamic in such an amazing way. Um, and, and you just see, it just seems that there's this twinge, this feeling 
in horsemen and I feel it. And I, and you know what you and I are talking about it right now. And I feel like you're right. There's a common thread in that desire to feel that twinge of man, something's just not quite here and they're not right. And that feeling grows until you start following it. And then you start getting revealed this process that I think is already hanging in the space. You know, I talk about this as a universal language and there's this, there's this way that exists in relationship, you know, and I, I kind of look at my style, I call it relational horsemanship, but it's this, it's this idea of understanding the principles of relationship that exist in this space that are, that are here. And as any of us kind of start seeking them, it's almost like that feel that's already there starts speaking to us and you see different people bringing it out in different ways. And to me, that's what I love about the community is, is everybody's going to kind of find it or feel it in their own unique way. And then if we all um, allow to learn from that uniqueness from each person, man, the amount of revelation is, is just outrageous. You know, it's, it's, so that's already kind of threaded there. And as you start feeding it, listening to that energy, it, it, you just start, you just start learning. And it's, it's just amazing. Like you said, it with the rats, it's like, I don't understand it, but it just seems, it just seems to be real. Like if you, if you just sit back and stop trying to force things, it's like, wow, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening there. Um, so yeah, it just, it just starts changing you. Yeah. And you know, one of the, one of the things we're all taught, I think relatively early on with horses, like when you, when you get past the, just being with horses, but then when you want to kind of train horses mm-hmm. and you want to be structured about it, one of the things we're taught is not to anthropomorphize, not to mm-hmm. give human emotions to horses. But I, I, personally, I'm starting to go back to that. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing because mm-hmm. they're mammals. They're wired mm-hmm. for connection uh, just like we are. And, you know, it's funny for me. I, I, I don't know. We'll get to yours in a minute, but you're just mm-hmm. talking about your own personal mm-hmm. journey. I've, you know, I've been on a bit of a personal growth journey for the last four years. And what I'm really seeing is the parallels of, you know, human psychiatry and, and like understanding human trauma and the parallels with, uh, with horses. And, you know, it's funny. I met a girl at uh, a horse expo. I think it was the main event in Chilliwack, mm. British Columbia a few years ago, this lovely lady named Kylie. And, uh, she has a, some sort of a psych degree and I made, I did a presentation there and she came up afterwards and she's just like, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. she was excited about it and I was excited. And this is probably four years ago when I was just mm-hmm. kind of starting down this path. And then here, oh, probably a year ago, she contacts me and she's was working with you in some, mm-hmm. f- some form. And I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's, I think, I don't know if it was Kyler that first introduced me to you, you what mm-hmm. you were up to, mm-hmm. but that's one of the ways that popped up on the radar. And, yeah. you know, Kylie, what's Kylie got a degree in? Is it? Uh, She's a, a psychologist. Yeah. And the the parallels, you know, and we're not supposed to anthropomorphize, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I think when you start putting terms like anger and belligerence mm-hmm. and those sorts of things, yeah, that's anthropomorphizing. Mm-hmm. But I think the whole connection thing, I don't think we're, clutching at straws here yeah when when it comes to that part of it yeah no i 100 percent agree w- what i feel like is is i feel i 100 agree that the horses are they have feelings and they have emotions and they have interactions and they desire that interaction i think what happened is you know one of the things that i i often talk about to kind of to talk about the difference is I look at the difference between what I call relational horsemanship and maybe more of a reactive emotional horsemanship. 
And our emotional horsemanship says when the horse does something, it's um, a demonstration of respect or disrespect. And that then justifies emotional pressure. So if the horse disrespects you, you can't let that happen. So then you feel justified to apply an emotional pressure. Um, and that's an interpretation in your mind. So that really sets a tone of, of a very non-relational type of presentation. And you could take that to all of life. You know, if you were to do that, you know, with a person and you interpret what they're saying as disrespectful, feel pretty justified to defend yourself. And then relational horsemanship being when a horse is struggling with something, which they will, and they will express that in many ways. And it's important that we listen to those ways because that gives us a bit of insight about how they're feeling and where they're at. It's a demonstration of met or unmet needs. And when we can start seeing the conversation of what our horses are speaking to us and in relationship, it's important that there's two very valid opinions that the horse speaks and has their opinion, then it's now our job to step in and try to meet their needs. And, uh, you know, we might chat a little bit more about some of this specifically, but that changes your intention and your energy. Now, the frequency of feeling disrespected and kind of personally attacked and then justifying emotional pressure and the difference between seeing that there's an unmet need and it's my job to meet it changes absolutely the frequency you give off. So, so now you stand there before the horse in calmness and more of an empathetic perspective versus upset, frustrated, you know, and now that, that just puts you into a position. If you're going to get the horse to do something and you're charged by those energies and emotions, it's going to turn into more of a dominant focus because the horse is not going to want to have anything to do with you. So I find that when we talk about, you know, you're trying, you're trying to say, you're saying there that, um, you know, the feelings they have are important. Well, the first thing I think is important is people start understanding that. And I think that was, you know, starting to happen a little bit more in, in years previous was your horse is not trying to disrespect you. But in the beginning, we said, yes, they are. They're disrespecting you and you can't let that happen. And then people say, no, don't, don't emotionalize that. You know, it's not, they're not doing that to, to strike out at you. But that doesn't mean they don't have emotions. It just means that those emotions might not be your judgment of what you think they're doing it for. And I feel like that's where it frees us, right? Because now we can say, yeah, I want to hear from you. I, I know when you're speaking to me, it's a demonstration of met or unmet needs. And I need to hear that because that gives me some insight about what I'm presenting to you. And those, your voice is really important. And for me, once you do that, man, the voice of the horse starts showing up and they start feeling confident instead of feeling desensitized and dulled out that their voice is not allowed to be heard. They feel free to start communicating. And to me, that's when the horse enters more of the universal language. So now they're speaking with you and you're able to communicate with them on a much deeper level. Um, and, and that honestly, that's where, that's where the good stuff starts is when the horses feel like they're allowed to communicate. And obviously we want to all be safe and we want to, you know, take care of certain elements, but man, to me, it just starts getting good when, when the horse feels free enough to be in that interaction and, and they're not, um, feeling like they're going to get in trouble or going to get chased or, you know, any of those, you know, maybe the more dominant type presentations. Yeah. And I think, you know, you said, you said some really important things in there. Like if anybody has a horse listening to this, which is probably everybody rewind that last five minutes and listen to it like ad nauseum. Cause <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the, what Josh just said. That's the stuff right there. Yeah. But the thing that you said about, um, judgment, mm. you know, I, 
like I said, you know, I've been doing a bit of a deep dive, personal mm. dive for a few years now. And I, I spent a year going to a, a type of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, mm. um, both individual therapy and group therapy. But mm. one of the, and, and at the time I was going there because I, I felt I had a lack of emotions. I read a, a Brene Brown book and she said, mm-hmm. you cannot selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the, the lower ones, you automatically suppress the higher ones. And mm. I, I kind of know growing up in my era, you know, the whole boys don't cry, that sort mm-hmm. of thing, um, that I had some lower emotions suppressed, but I never thought, could I have more joy, more happiness, more that mm. sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. when I read that, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if that would be available to me, you know. I don't think I'm missing it, but I mm-hmm. maybe I've never had it. And so I asked someone, kind of like Kylie, someone I've met mm-hmm. who is a therapist, and, they, and I said, what should I do? And they said, I'd go and try this dialectical behavior therapy, which was, I think was originally started for people, highly suicidal adults, but then they, mm-hmm. they started using it for people with any emotional, uh, emotional you know, issues. And I spent a whole year doing it, both individual and group therapy, and it really didn't do anything for me because what I found out was you actually have to have some emotions for that particular right. <laughs> thing to work. Yeah. Uh, but probably the best thing I learned all year was they talked about judgments. And, mm. and, and one of the homeworks they had us do was count our judgmental thoughts. Mm. They said, your homework for the next week, because I'd go <laughs> weekly, is you count your judgmental thoughts. You know, They said put some pebbles in your pocket, and when you have a judgmental thought, switch mm. it over. Or get one of those mm-hmm. little clicker things like the bus conductors have or the mm-hmm. you know, foreman at the, bar, at the nightclub or whatever. And I thought, well... I'm only going to have about three all day, so I'll just get three rocks and stick them in this pocket. And, and you know, by the end of the day, I'll have, I'll have three rocks yeah, in the yeah. other pocket. I had 21 before breakfast the first day. And yeah, yeah. the thing that I realized was that when you start being aware of your judgmental thoughts, mm-hmm. you become aware of, number one, how many you have. Mm-hmm. But number two, how many you have about yourself. I mean, we yeah. are our own worst enemy always. Mm-hmm basically just putting shit on ourselves yeah and and so and that's real and then it's really helped me change judgment a lot of things and i talk about judgment a lot these days but i'm glad you mentioned it right then because Mm -hmm. you know it's the whole observer effect thing you you get a reflection back of what you're putting out but what you're putting back what you're putting out is 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 your interpretation your judgment of what's happening in front of you and when you I like to quote Wayne Dyer. He says, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And mm-hmm. I have found it so much with the horses. And these days, a lot of times, and I've talked about this before in the podcast, but at, like at a clinic or a horse expo or whatever, and someone will have a horse on the end of a lead rope that's running around and distracted and whatever. And I'll say, well, hand him over here and I'll, I'll show you what to do. And in the past, I would show them what to do. But mm-hmm. in the last few years, people hand me the lead rope and <laughs> yeah the energy goes out of them mm-hmm. and and uh you know i don't want people to think it's some intangible mm-hmm. like i've got some sort of horse experience yeah. that yeah. they don't have because a lot of people i think they think i just i couldn't do what you do mm-hmm. um i i right then i say okay see what happened right then with this horse when i took a hold of the lead rope mm. i didn't do anything right now I didn't cast the magic spell. I didn't push some sort of magical energy. Mm-hmm. And I say that didn't used to happen to me. Mm. And what happened right then is the result of everything I've done mm. away from the horses, mm. not with the horses. That wasn't a horse thing right then. That was a, 
like a me energy thing right then. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I, you know, and I remember at one horse expo in New Zealand a couple of years ago and it really, it was so evident. This big warm blood was on the end of a lead rep running around and running into the lady and screaming and putting its head in the air and dragging her around. And she handed me the lead rep and he just went, mm. and I, I, I pointed it out and I said, I, I said to the crowd there, I said, I wish I could give you this, like mm. just to hand it to them because mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing. I said, but it's, but this is not, this is not about horses. This is not a, that whatever just happened is nothing to do with mm. horses. It's got to do with us. But the, you were just excited a minute ago, like I am right now about when you really get this and blah, 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 blah. But the thing about that is when you get it, it doesn't stay relative to just horses. It, mm -hmm. it, it becomes a, you know, like a Venn diagram for the rest of your life. It's a part of everything else you do and it changes everything else you do. And I think at that point, it's got nothing to do with horses. I think yeah. horses are just a conduit for this thing. It could be, it could be a martial art. Like I talked to Mark Rashid a couple of days ago and he talked a lot about Aikido. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a martial art like that. You know, I think horses are our martial art. They are something we are passionate about that. I mean, I've had people tell me, you know, since I've been following you and doing your stuff, not only my relationship with my horses changed, my relationship with my husband's changed, mm -hmm. my relationship with my kids changed. And I've had a lot of people tell me, I wouldn't have put that much work in for my husband or my kids and my mm -hmm. boss and my coworkers and my mother and my father and my sister or whatever, but I'll put it in for the horses. And I think that's the great thing about horses is we are just passionate about being around them, passionate about staying safe around them, and then passionate about having them be better for us. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's like the ultimate, uh, test hmm. you know it's like all these barriers these horses put up are like how bad do you want it tests mm. you know, like, and, and i don't mean a horse tests you sure. but it's just the nature of a horse to present some obstacles for us to sort out within ourselves so we can get the result we want but it's hmm. the result with the horse is neither here nor there really i think in the whole grand scheme of things what do you think oh i just agree 100 percent. i feel like there's all of these ways. Uh, I think that it's, uh, I like to look at it more like an enlightened philosophy. And there's there in that, in that way, that way of existing on the world for every person, um, it's somehow written in their DNA that they're drawn to a certain art to that, that kind of draws them to it. And for us, you're right. It's horses. You know, I, I, a lot of people look for spirituality or religion, or they look for things to connect. But for us, I feel, I feel like our enlightenment is drawn out by horses and for some maybe it's martial arts and for others something else but i feel like when you fit when you feel and see the way you know you've been touched by it when you see how cross borders it becomes because now it is it changes you can't look at your wife the same you can't look at the people the students the same there's a depth of love and empathy and kindness that starts to come out of your bones because it's changed you and and that's why i feel like it's a way it either when you really see it, you, 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 you become different. And I feel like, you know, there was a, uh, we had, you know, chatted a little bit or sent me there the ideas of some questions and some things to talk about. And man, boy, that's the deal right there. When people, the, there's no bigger gift that we can give people than to help them see and, and understand a, a way of existing on this earth that brings depth of joy and connection and relationship and pretty soon it doesn't matter what you touch. And I feel like every creature on the planet desires that depth and relationship. 
And, and when, when we let it out of us, when we touch it a bit, it draws people in, it draws horses in, it makes people feel comfortable and safe and calm. And, and honestly, that's the, that's the beauty of it. So you, I feel like that's kind of a, a telltale for people is when you see that this style starts to shift and change your entire life philosophy, you know, you're starting to see things in more of a philosophical universal spectrum. And now you're touching stuff that, that, that just change, it changes you. You are, you will not, you cannot be the same person once it starts to sink into your being. Um, and I think that whole relational perspective versus a, a more emotional or dominant perspective, you know, when we're in, when we're in a self-preserving, more dominant perspective, we push everything away, just trying to keep what we have. It's more of a scarcity based perspective. And when we really touch this more relational way of being there is such abundance in the energy. And, you know, it's almost like, I feel like people often, often ask me that why I'm not so tired by the amount of work that goes into the things that, that we do. And there was a time I was exhausted. I was way more tired, but the more I start to tap into this deeper scope, I feel like I'm supercharged all the time because it's like, I'm touching something different. I'm into something else. And yeah, it's anyways, I, I think I'm, we're kind of saying the same thing in two different ways, but it's like, but it is, it's true. And if, and that's the best way I can tell people is if you feel like it's starting to change the way you speak to your wife or your husband, and it's different in how you start processing the judgments you make or the perspectives you have, you know, you're starting to touch a more universal concept of relationship. And I think that's when I say relational horsemanship, you know, I, I really try to focus on the relational part and then horsemanship kind of fades off. It's like, yeah, it's to do with horses. But the only way you're going to really get this is if you're thinking about it, not just when you're with your horse. You know, you guys listening at home, this is a podcast. I wish you could see what I can see is because you're just hearing the words coming out of this guy. But the, Josh is sitting here. He's got a he's got a button-down plaid shirt on. He's got a beard. And he's got a sweat-stained cowboy hat on. And that did not sound like the words of a – Button-down plaid shirt, beard, sweat-stained cowboy hat. He could have, he could have dreadlocks and a robe on right now, and it would be probably more fitting than what he just said. And that's the that's the thing I'm really finding these days mm. is it's like it's like these horses are our gurus, sort of thing. Mm. You know, they they provide all the the teachings we need. Uh, yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, but I can tell, you know, you just said how you, you don't get tired anymore. Yeah, mm. you're, there's an energy coming off you I can feel through the screen <laughs> here. Like, like, do you know Jonathan Field? I do. You know, Jonathan's got the coolest energy of anybody I've yeah. ever met. Like, he's yeah. just, he's zen. You've mm-hmm. got a zen energy, but mm. it's turned up a little bit. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh. like, it's like a thousand watts coming off you. And like, yeah. I, <laughs> oh, it's awesome. I, I just feel like it's... It's just, it is charging, right? You know, when you, when you really start, um, there's things that, um, are coming to my mind just in regards to some of these things we talked about, but some of the questions there that you had asked. Um, and, uh, one of the, there's, there's two books that, that have just knocked me over. And, uh, one of them is Kinship with All Life by J. Allen Boone. I don't know if you've ever read that one, but you know, that, that really hit me quite early that there's, there is way more to connecting with anything you know than than we initially see 
And when we're in a self-preserving state, you'll never see it. All you'll do is be defensive. And then the other one is breaking the habit of being yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Joe, but, um, and this was, that was life-changing for me. <laughs> because, I, I, sorry to interrupt. I did a podcast called Books That Have Influenced Me. Okay. Okay. And there was a lot of Joe, Dr. Joe Dispenza books mm-hmm. in there. Cool. Uh, and also A Kinship With All Life was in that podcast. So, huh. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's kind of like a combination of those two. You know, if you think, if you think Kinship With All Life says there is this way, and what Joe is trying to open up the doors for us to do is to understand that there's actually a system in our body where your body is addicting to, you know, we talked about judgment and how connected we can get to judgment and that we then, you know, our minds create a thought and then our bodies need to know how to identify in this moment. So it releases chemicals and then energy to replicate that thought. So then we are actually addicted to judgment or, you know, we get so connected. I say addicted. I know that can be a strong term, but we get, we get connected to that way of thinking. So if we can start opening ourselves to a deeper way of thinking about animals and then we can start, and I think this is where the the self-development or really, really going inside yourself, when you can really realize that this organ is actually trainable to get to a place where you can be emitting energies of connection and, and freedom and joy and abundance, and you can actually start training your body to these things. I think this is what where we can start honing our ability to go deeper. It's a real thing to me that we talk about feel all the time. It's a big term. And some people would say that some people can feel and some people can't. And I tend to disagree because I feel like we have lived our lives in such a way where we've gotten to such a state of self-preservation and we move our thoughts and our energies in very defensive ways. So we actually wall off and then we try to engage the space with a person or a horse or an environment and our bodies cannot connect with it because we have actually blocked off our ability to feel the space. So then we want technical ideas and principles to try to gain the relationships that we're inspired by, but we're not able to feel anything. But when we start changing our perspective and we start understanding the organ and we understand our bodies and how they work and how we can actually proactively train ourselves into a space where we can feel then. And I feel like that's the difference when you're talking about, man, I wish I could give this to you guys. You know, and, and that isn't isn't that the thing that we're trying to do is trying to open doors for people to feel and connect and know deeper connections. And I think that's such a big thing is as we can feel and reach out into the space, then, man, that starts. Now we start talking about the difference between leadership and, you know, what is leadership? And man, it's a big deal because it really comes down to leadership. Leadership for me is it's more about embodying a way that actually draws stuff to you. It draws energy. It changes the polarity in you. And, and now things desire to be around you because they feel peaceful. They feel empowered. And then, you know, a lot of times I find this, that, that there's been a, a bit of a guise placed over leadership to hide dominance. You know, we, we say that leadership is necessary, but it's really a guise for dominance. We're just forcing our hand and saying that this needs to happen. And I love to think that leadership is really about embodying something to such a degree that that stuff just wants to be around you they want to feel you they want to be with you and the feel that starts to come in the space oh it's so big and then being you know following or or being led i guess is to 
desire that. We desire that connection. And I think in all areas, um, you know, there's moments in this podcast where you and I are chatting and there's things you're saying and I'm, and I'm trying to click on my follower. So I can really glean from what you're saying with as true a space as I possibly can. And then there's going to be moments where you're going to do the same. And when we're in that space of leadership, really all we're doing is saying, here's what's so deeply real to me. So it isn't about uh, trying to make something happen. And I think that's where people start missing the boat. The more you try to force, the more it just kind of puffs out your hands. But the more you can just try to embody, all of a sudden the world starts changing around you. And I feel like that's what starts to unleash the higher consciousness because now there's all these people that are releasing that kind of energy. I just think it just gets crazy. Yeah, I've had uh, I've had some in the last couple of years. I've you know, there's one there's one good thing about being quite public about how woo woo you are. Mm, right. <laughs> you don't get the wrong people show up to your clinics. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> you right. Get, I had. So I basically almost haven't done a clinic since March last year because of the mm. COVID thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, in March last year, I was in Australia and I did a clinic in a state of Australia called South Australia. And I don't need to tell you that's in the southern part of Australia. <laughs> and there was probably we had a, at least 100 spectators there. And everybody was on the same page. Mm-hmm. And there was a collective energy in that building, it was not unlike, I don't know if you've been to Europe, but when you go into one of those old cathedrals mm. in Europe, you go inside and you just, you just feel the energy of the reverence of everybody mm. who's ever been in that thing. Right. It was like that. And and then I, I had one in Australia, the December, just before that, that was the same. And it was like, and magic happened. Mm-hmm. Like ma- there was a mm. horse that came to that, that clinic in December and he was an Appaloosa and I think he might've been trained as a Western pleasure horse initially. Mm-hmm. And he was just shut down like lights on no one's home, mm-hmm. like just gone inside himself. And luckily he wasn't so inside himself that he totally ignored us. He actually rejected us, which mm-hmm. was good. <laughs> like the mm-hmm. lady's in there holding him and he kept trying to walk off. And I said, let me just take hold of the lead back for a minute. And I did. And when he turned and just, he didn't walk off in a fast way. He just kind of sh- got inside himself and kind of shuffled away. Mm-hmm. I just said, what I'm going to do with him now is I'm just going to go with him. I'm just going to match steps with mm-hmm. him and blend in with him. And, and what I'm saying is if you can't connect with me, I can connect with you. Mm-hmm. And I match steps with him for a bit. And sometimes I'll match steps with him for five minutes and boom, the lights will come. And they're like, oh, there you are. And sometimes, it, sometimes it's 10 steps, sometimes mm-hmm. it's 10 minutes, but sometimes it's hours. And I walked around with him for probably 20 minutes and I said, okay, this is going to take a while. Take over this lead rope and your whole job with this horse is go when he goes, stop when he stops and match your front feet to his front feet. That's all I want you to do. That's all that lady did for her session that day. So she put him away. The next morning she brings him in and he starts wandering around again. So she wanders around with him and they probably wandered for 45 minutes. And finally he came to a stop in one place. And I said to the crowd, I was going to start working with him. I said to the crowd, you know, I saw, I said last month I was in New Zealand and I saw Elsa Sinclair do this thing with a horse. I'm going to try mm-hmm. it right now. What I was going to do was go over and take the halter off him. And I walked over and, and there was an energy, like everybody there was on the same page sort of thing. No one's mm-hmm. mind was like, come on, show me how to pull and kick, you know? Right. And I walked over and I said, tell me the lady's name was Tracy and she handed me the lead rope and that horse as I took the lead rope, 
he looked at me and buckled at the knees and went, boom. <laughs> went down, went to sleep, unconscious. <laughs> and he's lying there. And, and I said to Tracy, so, you know, because this is not this big a deal if this horse lays, go, lays down every time mm. walks in the arena sort of thing. I said, is this common? And, and it's amazing what comes out at these clinics. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, is this common? She goes, I haven't seen him lay down in three months, in the three months since his pasture mate died. Crazy. Hmm. Hmm. And I was like, but the, yeah, the, the energy in that place was just, oh, it was just off the yeah. chart. It's just. Hmm. Yeah. It was like a faith healing or something, you know, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. So I'm so I'm kind of lucky. I'm very lucky that way that um, I, being quite public about where I'm headed to, I I tend to only get the people who are headed that way anyway. I don't get yeah. the naysayers. And these days, for me, I don't know. I'm going to ask you how you get along with it. Um, these days, it's uh, it kind of drains me trying to talk to people about this stuff who aren't ready to listen to it. Do you mm. do you find that? Um, well, I actually, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation with a, a lady about this because she's, you know, working at developing her space and, you know, and feeling the challenge of, of those types of things. You know, for me, I, I, there's that, you know, there's that saying is that people can only understand at the level that they resonate. And, um, I, I have, this was a thing for me when I, I really started reaching out a bit when I guess when I, uh, build my website and, you know, started, you know, really doing the clinics. It was this thought that, cause I always felt, uh, well, I guess it goes back. Maybe I could tell a story, but, uh, when Tom Dorrance had his needed a heart bypass, Ray Hunt had done his, uh, done a, a deal there where he had, um, invited a whole bunch of anybody who had been affected by Tom really. And it was in Fort Worth and, uh, it was raised money for Tom. And I went there. That was when I, I think I was 20 or 21. And that was last, kind of thing I spent with Harry and I, boy, I was, to me, it was just like, holy smokes, you know, every, anybody that was anybody was, you know, seemed like anybody in, that was there that had been affected by Tom and made me feel real small. And, uh, people were asking me to help him after that. And I was no deal. Cause I felt like there's so many people out there that do their thing and I didn't even want to connect. I just wanted to do my own thing. And, but somehow it kind of struck me that it was like, when I actually committed to starting to reach out, it was on the deal that it's like, all I'll do is I'm going to share with you exactly what works for me. And if you like it, great. And if you don't like it, great. You know, and it's totally fine if you don't, if it's not your deal, it's not your deal. So then what I've come to now is a slowly, I re you recognize that, you know, some people are really keen on my deal. And now I, now I really feel like when I spread information, I remember a preacher said this one time, he was talking about spreading the gospel, but he said he was talking about hay on his wagon and he said, you know, I'm just going to kick that hay off the wagon. And if those cows eat the hay, that's their deal. And the ones that, you know, want to wait a little, then they can wait. You know, and it was kind of, kind of made me feel like the same with my, my teaching, right? And I know that I have come to recognize I'm not here for everybody. And that was a big deal because it actually stops us from thinking we have to compete with anybody because you're going to say things in a way that's going to speak to some people in ways that I'm not going to reach them. But if the collective goal is that we, we just elevate that we elevate people's awareness then, then we need to have that uniqueness. So if the people don't resonate with me, I don't, I don't even argue with, it's like, no, it's no problem. Like you can. So then I kind of try to live in this really free state of just constantly just trying to be myself and do my thing. And, and all of a sudden they, they find another home and I'm stoked for them. 
And if they don't agree or disagree or, or they love it or they don't, it's totally fine. I just want to keep pursuing my own knowledge and then sharing it so that the people that I'm here for get to hear my message. Um, and it gets, it makes it freeing then. So I don't get fatigued by the people that don't like it. And you're right. It starts changing your culture. I, the people that, you know, I, it's been a while since I've had somebody come up that's, you know, a little bit more confrontational because it's, they say, well, what about this? And I say, great. You know, that's cool. If that's, if that's the way you want to do it, you go, right? Like it's, it's no, it doesn't harm me. And as long as you're trying your best, take care of your horses and you know, do your best. Great. So it just changes. It kind of takes the energy out of the the negative feelings and turns it back into, you know, it's okay to grow. It's okay to be where you're at. And uh, the more we, I think, you know, we accept people in clinics um, right where they are and, and are happy to start right where they are. And, and the same with, with uh, people that maybe need to go somewhere else or, or need clarity. But um, yeah, I think it's kind of a mind thing for me. Yeah. You got it going on. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here mesmerized by the whole, I'm actually getting quite a vibe off of you right now. I, I tell you, I got to tell you two days ago, I did a, a podcast that we've released that um, really resonated with a lot of people. And it was a guy named Rupert Isaacson who mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book called the horse boy. And I, I did the podcast with him two days ago and I'm still something, I had some sort of a crazy energetic shift while I was talking to him and it's still, uh, yeah, I'm in a mm-hmm. bit of, I'm in a bit of a state right now, actually. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not saying it's a bad state, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's a like on the edge of an emotional <clears throat> kind of a thing. Plus this somatic thing. Yeah. I've got some, wouldn't say it's weird stuff going on, but I'm, but anyway, <sighs> you're, you're, you're the energy coming off you is helping that. Like it's, it's a yeah. good energy. So yeah, that's cool. So um, you mentioned before, you know, you talked about Deb and you're talking about Harry and Tom, mm. but then you said there was this whole personal development mm. growth thing on the other side of that. Do you mind sharing some of that with us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, man, I, horses seem to seem to enlighten it the most. Um, you know, you, you get you come up against certain horses that it's funny when I look at horses and you look at the situations of what helps you grow. And when, when you come up against certain things and you keep bumping your head up against something the same way, you know, the common theme starts to make sense. You know, in the beginning, it's pretty easy to try and make it about horses and that the horses need to change or this is a good horse or bad horse or, you know, and slowly you start recognizing that there's a bit of a theme. And uh, then you, you kind of bump into certain people that, that seem to be different and they seem to navigate life in this unique way. And that really defines my level of leadership where it's like, why is the man that person? I just want to be around that person. Like something around them is just ridiculous. And you see it in certain horses too. Certain horses just have this level of depth, you know, that's just something more. And then it just inspired me to, you know, and I, I'm a relational guy. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't have, it's not okay for me to live in chaotic environments, uh, especially if there's, if there's, uh, you know, something I can do to establish um, a level of peace in it. Um, and, you know, boy, uh, it, it means you have to learn a lot. You have to, you have to be willing to, you know, do some of that self-reflection. And I think the hardest part about it is, is being able to say, man, I might need to change some things. And when you become willing to say that openly, that, you know, I, I might have to look at things different. Um, the world starts changing for you and you start then looking at what are you bringing to the table? And I think relational horsemanship starts with that. It's, it's this willingness for me to say, man, what's going on in me? Like what, 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 maybe the way I'm looking at something is, is actually part of the problem. Maybe the way I'm moving my energy is part of the problem here. And then you just start digging, you know, and I, I feel like, I feel like 
we're a bit like brothers in that, you know, there's this desire to just go deeper, you know, and, and then man, that rabbit hole just seems to go on and on, you know? And, and so then, yeah, that, that was a, a big step. I think there's always been a desire to have a still mind, but yet uh, I'm pretty uh, sensitive. So then yeah, I spent a lot of time pretty discontent for, for no reason whatsoever. Just, just unsure. You know, I, I had a, a great upbringing. I had you know, amazing parents that like, created great opportunities for me, but yeah, there's this piece of me. And I, I honestly look at that now and I don't, I think that was always there to, to keep drawing me, you know, just keep drawing me in. Um, and then you start, listening to people that are diving deep and you start seeing there's there's some science to it i'm I'm a scientist as well i actually spent six years in university and got a science degree and uh so i love the science of things i think it's very important because it uh let's not you're just going to skip over that bit let's back uh, up now now we're okay so we're not just spend a lot of time in nature deb Mm -hmm. bennett harry Mm -hmm. whitney tom dorrance now Mm -hmm. this this because this is all part of it what yeah Six years science degree. What did you get? What sort of degree? What was it? Uh, yeah, I have a, a general a science degree with concentrations in biology, economics, and environmental studies. I had anticipated that I was going to build my own consulting uh, business, and you know, I was just. But I always loved nature. I always, you know, I had, you know, I didn't have storybooks. I had books on, you know, World Wildlife Foundation and this kind of stuff. So I was just intrigued by it. So I kind of put that in there, but my mind. I am, I am this weird balance of very logical and very scientific, but also very feely. And I really like when your feel can be somewhat confirmed through the biology and there's some kind of um, scientific method to, to maybe see things or to understand its, its reality. And when, when you start seeing some of the things that are evidence-based, you know, and what Dr. Joe, even Dr. Joe and some of these different guys that are doing this, but they're taking brain scans and you're seeing real change when people are merely changing their thinking. Like this, this blows your mind, you know, cause it's no longer, you know what? And you talked about, you said the word woo woo and, you know, and I get that too. And people are, I I'll, honestly, I am trying to the best of my ability to understand exactly how we've been made. And I don't want to close my mind just because it's hard for me to swallow it. I want to stay super open to whatever is real and I want to touch it because it's like, I mean, you know, like how, how much more are you blessed in this life because of diving into yourself and starting to try and find how you might find peace and alignment and stillness. Like uh, my life is, my life has changed. You know, it's not the, the, the blessings of life are not about getting lots of stuff, but about getting to a place where you're so okay within yourself, you know, and that, and that it starts to get to where your body craves that you want you want that peace. And instead of just wanting to be right or needing affirmation or needing someone to tell me I'm doing well, you get to a place where what you're craving is just being okay inside and still. And, and what are the byproducts of that feelings of abundance and joy? And then, Oh, byproducts. My horses like me more. They want to be around me, you know, and, and Oh, byproduct. I have a better relationship with my wife. So I spend a lot of time. I would spend a lot of time in that state, you know, and I feel like, I feel like that's, a spiritual language you know it allows us to sense and know elements of god more and 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 get real connected you know with those around us and honestly i don't know where it goes I, i'm just open you know i'm just trying to be open and uh i keep getting blown away you mentioned dr joe there again and mm-hmm. talking about quantifiable things so i was in england a couple of years ago so it must have been not last year because i didn't go anywhere last year 2019 i did 
two weeks worth of clinics in in England, working from the bottom of England up to mm. above uh, Edinburgh in Scotland. And then I got done on a Sunday. My son was with me. He's 24 now. He's 23 mm-hmm. or two at the time. Uh, we caught a, the overnight train from Edinburgh to London. So like slept on the train. That was a bit mm-hmm. of an experience. Cool. And then we went to a one day um, Joe Dispenza, Greg Braden conference the next day awesome. in, in London. And they had a um, uh, one of those heart math, you know, the yeah. heart coherence things. Mm-hmm. And they had a girl out of the audience. There was, I think there was a hundred or 200 people. I can't remember how many, I think it was 200 people in this, in this deal. And they got this girl up on stage and they hooked her up to one of those things that clips on your ear that, that, mm. that, that checks your coherence, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we all 200 of us did a meditation, uh, mm-hmm. a, a heart breathing meditation at the same time. And mm-hmm. this girl, her heart rate was like 120 cause she's up on stage in front of right. 199 strangers and in front of Dr. Joe and Greg Braden. Yeah. Right. And w- her coherence was like 5% or something or other. Mm. And we did this 20 minute heart breathing meditation and we got her coherence all the way up to a hundred percent, even though her heart rate was still 120. So mm. she was, she was still stressed, but yeah. And right. just, yeah. And just the, the, the energy in that room right there mm. was kind of like what I talked about the clinics and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The energy in that room with everybody doing that same meditation yeah, yeah, yeah. was, yeah, it was, it was off the charts. It was so cool. You know, you, you, as you're talking about that, it makes me think about, you know, we were just chatting earlier about leadership and, you know, what leadership means to me. And um, I feel like when every being, every being, every different being, every different species seems to be able to lead us into something, some unique awareness about, about what it means to be. And, uh, you know, I, this whole idea with horses and uh, there's elements of leadership where we can bring great value to horses and there's these other elements where, my goodness, just being in their frequency, it, it changes It changes us. And then isn't it cool, right, that we actually know now that it is changing our heart frequency, that our coherence is changing just by being. And so then now when you know that, what happens is you start to empower the brain and the organ and the energy within you to sit within a horse's space and start to recognize that what's going on in them is powerfully affecting you. Now the relationship starts to become different because there's actually – it's not really about leadership isn't really about then us getting them to do anything. It's about us being able to be together in a way where we're empowering each other to grow. You know, so there's moments where my horse is leading me and I have this one horse, his name's Max. And it's, he, he honestly has, has led me to, to just most of this. He's 23 now and I've had him from a yearling. And um, anyways, the, this idea that, that there are things they lead us to, and there are things we lead them to, and there is no only when there when there is dominant mind frames we miss out on the depth of the relationship, and and that's the thing I feel like I'm trying to draw more and more to and keep learning. Like man, there's just so much to learn, and I I know you're kin to that. You know, just the the depth of what we need to take in to even touch the edge of what's out there. You know, and and uh, man, it's such a big deal. You know what's funny though, like you've been you've been on this path for a long time. I've been on this path for a very short time. So for me, I went from one place to somewhere completely different in about the mm. space of about three years. And what I've, <laughs> what I've seen, what's been an interesting journey for me is, you know, you were talking before about like that emotion based mm-hmm. response. Well, I had no emotion. So my training was an emotion mm. based, 
but it was is it you that talks about transactional versus transformational? Is that you or someone else? Nope. Well, I wouldn't say it like that, but so uh, someone, I, someone I, know, I thought mm-hmm. was you talked about mm-hmm. there's transactional training and then there's transformational training. Mm-hmm. Who the hell is it if it's not you? Anyway, it was for me, it was all transactional. Right. So I've got horses here, uh, you know, like one of them's I suppose he's 15 now. He was one I competed on at the World Equestrian Games two years mm-hmm. ago, but I'd I'd had him for about, I've had him for about eight or nine years now. Mm. Initially, the first few years was in my care because it was a client's horse. We own him now. But then I've got a, you know, one of my horses, he's probably eight now, I guess. Mm. So he had five years of the old me, three years of the new me. And it's amazing oh. how <laughs> much undoing there is. And once you mm-hmm. start seeing you know, cause it's all, it was just all about obedience. And, and, and I was very good at getting a horse to be obedient without being overbearing with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was all, it was all making it their idea. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't forcing them to do stuff. Uh, but then there's, there's a complete level after that, as you know, once right. you get to the mind, you get to the feet, but I was on, I was on that path, but mm-hmm. it, it's been, oh, you just, those once you open your eyes to this stuff, working with those horses, it, they really tell you hmm. about who you used to be. You know what oh. I mean? And it's and it's and like I've got a, I guess he's just turned two, uh, that I've only ever done relational stuff with, and he's mm. he's just the most bright eyed, prick eared, mm-hmm. um, and he's the friendliest horse. Like he can be out in the pasture in it with a you know with a we got uh, like slow, slow feeders, you know, slow mm-hmm. hay. He can have this big bin full of hay and he pulls his head out of that and walks straight up to you every time mm. and hangs. There's no mm. clingy. Mm-hmm. And he's not disregardful of my space. He's very aware, of that, but he just would like to just hang. And, it's, mm. and it, you know, he's just so pure, whereas mm. you know, all the other ones, I've got so much of the old me in there and you're always undoing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's no judgment in that. I mean, you know, we're all sure. at, we're at, but it's yeah. just recognizing and, and, and it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like reading your diary from mm-hmm. five years ago sort of thing. It's right. like, Oh, I was thinking that then these horses just kind of reflect that back. Yeah. Then, you know? Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, this max horse, you know, I, you know, and you know this, right. You go through these phases of training where you're trying this and then you're trying that and you're now you're hot onto this thing and then you move over to that. And, um, when I was, you know, Max said, 20s, 22, I guess now. And I got him when he was a yearling. And when I was getting him started, I, I was working at different ranches. And so my horses predominantly would have gotten experience kind of cowboying and, and doing that, living that life. So they get lots of exposure and they can get pretty, pretty calm with stuff because they get exposed. But there's yet this resonance of anxiety that kind of lies under the surface. And, and you know, at a certain place that seems to be okay. But I, I could never, I could never be okay with it. I always felt like there's just something missing that I wasn't getting there. So it made my journey of achieving things with horses very challenging because I could, I couldn't, if I got to a place where I started sacrificing how they felt for the thing I was asking them to do, I, I, I couldn't do it. So then I've, it's been this kind of, I feel like, I feel like sometimes my journey has been slow and in, in kind of getting th- horses to do stuff because of that very reason that I've always been trying to blend you know, how do you honor the horse and how do you get them to be okay with the thing you're asking? And I went through this phase, you know, where you're trying to work on laying a horse down and um, the things that I 
you know, had watched various people do and, and you see guys doing it real well and you see some people not doing it so well, but you're trying to figure that out. And Max would never like the resistance in him to not do it. And he wouldn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't scared or angry, but it was almost like he was saying, no, this is not how this is happening. Like we're not, you're, we're not doing this. And that stinking horse, I will take him to a clinic. There was a clinic I took him to and, and I unloaded him and we were just going to be in this one arena for a couple minutes and I didn't want to leave him in the trailer. I took him out and then he was standing with me and I'm telling you like time and time again, he'll just lay down beside me. But, but I, and, but it was like, there's commitment in him. He's like, don't, don't you lay me down. Don't take from me what is for me to give you. And I'm telling you, Bork, it blew, it blew my mind open because it, it put on me now that there's something more here to be achieved but there's always that desire to try to make things happen. But Max has been the epitome of, uh, let me give you this. Like this will be so much different when you let me give it to you. And, and when he does, it's exhilarating. And anytime that horse is ever laid down, like there's you know, people have different pictures of it and stuff. And, and the, the, the level of frequency that he gives off when he does it, it, it makes me emotional every time. Cause I know I, I've committed to him. I'm not laying you down. I'm, I'm not doing, I'm not taking from you what's yours to give. And boy, so just over, over and over and over, you know, the, that horse has, has been so inspirational to me. And for some reason I, I, I said, okay, you know, when I was, when I kind of put a rope on his leg and I tried to get him to soften to it and I was trying to do it in as much a respectful way. And he said, no. And for, I'm just so thankful that in that moment, it was like, I, that came over me. Say, don't, don't try to make this happen. And I, and I listened anyways, it's just. Yeah, getting the getting the chance to to be with some of those horses, and he still carries lots of those pieces from our past. And I I, get, I hear you when the you know I I actually crave re- getting another horse to start because I get so excited about being able to connect with them at a pure state with with where I'm at today, and it just feels like you know every day I just am getting snowballed with more more understanding and more okayness within myself, and it just changes how you pick up a lead rope, it changes how you pick up your reins. You know, it, it's very cool. Um, yeah. yeah, that that foal of ours, like I said, is two now. Mm. You know, I used to I used to imprint foals. You know, I get a hold of them and do all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. with them. And then, you know, you mentioned science before. How you, know, you get mm-hmm. the sciencey side, and you're trying to blend the sciencey and the woo woo. Mm-hmm. You know, and I seem to come to the science from the back end all the time. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't until I just I started working on all this connection stuff, and then I discovered polyvagal theory, mm-hmm. which completely explained why what I was doing was working from a scientific point, but I didn't come, you know, I didn't start out with the science mm. and then take it to the practical. I started with the practical and came to the science. But so this foal, like, you know, when he was first born and we had to, you know, give him an anima and do his umbilical mm. cord and stuff. Normally I'd get a hold of those foals and we do that. And I would not let go until they were relaxed mm-hmm. with him right. I got a hold of him and you know he had a bit of a struggle and we did his anima we did the umbilical cord and then i waited and waited until he started to struggle yeah there you go and then <laughs> i let go and i did everything with him you've always been told you shouldn't ever do with a horse sort of thing and he's a completely different horse like we never touched him mm-hmm. it was all sent we'd go and sit out mm-hmm. there and if he wanted to come up to us i mean mm-hmm. eventually we did but yeah. by the time we did he was he was he was good with it, but that whole, you know, have you ever read Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine? Mm-mm, I have not. 
so it's about how trauma is stored in the body and uh, yeah and, uh, that's you know the, like the in like vietnam the surgeons the combat surgeons they had this saying as they go in so they come out so if mm. you put them under anesthesia and they're screaming and swinging their arms <laughs> right. when they come out of it they'll be screaming and swinging their arms because that's that trauma response being uh way through and when you grab a hold of a fall and he struggles and struggles and then you, you wait till he stops struggling and you let go that trauma response is still stuck in there that mm-hmm. it's it's a, that yeah. flea response is suspended somewhere it's, it hasn't completed its cycle yeah and um yeah I, when i had a hold of him i thought i'm not going to let go robin said mm. you let go now i'm like no i'm not going to let go till he starts to struggle mm-hmm. and it, it's just so counter to what we're always taught about about training if you always yeah. to let go when he struggled yeah you're training the bad things. To struggle, and it's it's yeah. the same thing with. Have you have you heard much about Cat H? Um, H- vaguely, I I see it, I see it, I hear about it, but I don't know the specifics of it. Well, it's you know, it's kind of the the it's it's about staying on the threshold and stuff, but mm. it's about it's about when they start to worry you, you, you pause instead of, you know, and it's, it's mm. about, it's really about attunement. It's really about letting them know that you see mm. their concern. And it's, mm-hmm. but it looks like, i tell you what, that clinic I said I did in South Australia last year, there was a horse there and she was the lady that had her there. I, I've known her for years and she's a very experienced horsewoman and it's a new horse to her. And this mare, she said, she's kind of pissy, you know, like you got to touch and she pins her ears and like, glares at you and flattens her ears back and i said oh interesting anyway she was holding on to it and i approached her and i probably got 10 feet away and that mare pinned her ears at me and mm. i stopped and stepped back mm. and then i approached and she pinned her ears and i stopped and stepped back and i kept doing that and each time i'd get a little bit closer and i said is there anybody here who thinks i'm now teaching this horse to attack me <laughs> and one lady not only shot her hand up she stood up and mm. put her hand up and she said me you're going to get your lunch eaten here in a minute. And I said, <laughs> you know what? I said, you must be very experienced with horses, are you? Yeah. I said, yeah, I've been, I've been training horses all my life. I said, that's why you think that way, because, mm-hmm. because you know how to train horses. You know how mm-hmm. to train and the process of training. This is not training. This is communication. I said, I'm stepping towards her and she pins her ears. I'm going to step back to tell her I saw a concern because I'm the one who bought that who bought that, mm. that, that proximity. Mm-hmm. If she walks up to me and pins her ears, I might do a jumping jack or something or other to change her thoughts about that. But that was her approach to me. I'm approaching mm-hmm. her. Anyway, I got closer and closer and closer. And in the end, I could walk up to her and rub on her and her ears were forward. And I, and the lady said, and you got to touch her side. She's really pin eared. And so I started doing like reach around to touch her, like, to touch a neck or whatever and she'd pin her ears but then i changed tactics instead of retreating i put my hand like the back of my hand on her neck and she kind of pinned her ears at me and i just waited and she glared at me and i just waited and then her expression softened a little bit and i took it away and i said now who thinks i'm going to get bitten and the lady's like yeah you're gonna get bitten and i did that for probably five or ten minutes and in the end i could and they said around a girth like she could have mm-hmm. old around a girth she's really bad ten minutes later i could rub her around the girth and as it was totally the opposite of what I would have mm-hmm. done five years ago, but it's, it's not training. Right. It's, it's communication. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the term attunement. I don't know if you've run into attunement mm-hmm. in your, but you know, like 
uh, UCLA professor of psychology, Daniel Siegel, calls it, uh, says it's the sense of being seen and being heard. Mm. And that's that whole polyvagal theory. And that's, yeah. you know, for me these days, it's connection first, training second. And I found yeah. if you get the connection first, the training is e easier, so yeah. much easier. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I hear you. I, I feel like, you know, when I talk about relational horsemanship and, you know, this is about meeting needs and those needs are, you know, I gen general, these are obviously generalizations, but mind, space and pressure. And, and generally many of these horses when it comes to, and they, they need to know how to exist inside of those to have relationship with a person. But when they come from a self-preserving state, anytime the horse is in a self-preserving state, they will engage these principles or these, these needs in more guarded ways. And most horses, when it comes to pressure, they need to know how to control the pressure. It's not a matter of, you know, I think this is where that whole dominant uh, idea kind of infuses our thinking. And I deal with this a lot. You know, you're working a horse, show up and there's a round pen and the horse is in the round pen. And, you know, ne never let that horse turn their hindquarters to you because, you know, you're there. This is what that means. And it's a little bit like this pinning the ears, right? Well, the horses have kind of learned that they need to be defensive and guarded for some reason. And that's how they're associating to that moment. Well, how about if we help them understand that they can control the pressure in another way? But it's all relational. It's not defensive. It's not, it is, they're not doing this because they have some negative judgment to you. They're just trying to figure out how to be okay. And if you can just see that unmet need, and then you say, well, how can I help you be okay? So, so the first is, is to settle the needs. And I think you're on track exactly. I would I agree this idea that, you know, it's like, oh, honey, if I, if I add to you, I add to you, I've done that. I crossed your threshold and I did that in a way that makes you feel defensive. Every single time I will give way to that because that's on me. That's not on you. And then the next place is, how do I then empower you to understand how to control that pressure in a new way? So the key for me is, is they're just desiring how to, how to identify with that and how to exist in the moment. And when horses are not being heard, ah, it makes sense. Anybody is defensive when they don't feel heard, when they don't feel like they know how to find peace in some form of communication or relationship. So the horses do it all the time. And I think that's the goal. So spatially, you know, people say that a lot too about, you know, you got to get that horse out of your space and you can't. But I find, so there's kind of these, some horses are more mind-based, some are more space-based, and some are more pressure-based. And they all have, you know, and they're all a mix of everything. But some of them will tend to have greater need for clarity in certain elements. And when you give them that clarity, oh, the peace is ridiculous. And if you don't give it to them, it drives them crazy. They, they just can't exist inside that relationship. And spatially, you get horses that they're, they're wanting to be with you because they're trying to feel you. And they need to feel that spatial interaction. And so then when a horse comes into your space and there's this more dominant idea about, you know, get out of my space, you know, these horses are seeking connection. And so they get so bothered that they can't feel you. And you tie that in with people who are tucked, their spatial energy is tucked behind their walls because they don't, they don't, they're not in their own space. So these horses just keep seeking you, you know, and then they get so bothered about it. And we talk then about dominance and it gets all twisted, right? So so the so fun to kind of mess with that thinking, you know, and, and then and it, I know I'm sure you I'm sure somewhere in there you get a little bit of joy out of the fun of changing these perspectives and, you know, bringing this new mind. And I, I enjoy the process of watching and and it's very evidence based. You know, you you let people sit with you there for a minute and then all of a sudden the horses start to change. But these horses that want to come into your space is like kind of allow them to but then let them feel you let them feel what they're searching for. 
which is that can, that clarity and that understanding. And when you give it to them, oh man. And to me, the mind is the most important part because if when their mind can connect with you and they feel that they can sense your energy, now you have the opportunity to bring a new perspective. And I find, you know, like with this whole stuff with Joe and, you know, recognizing the power of the mind and that we can program our mind um, for a different future rather than a consistent past. Uh, we can do that with our horses by in the moments when they bring up and she pins her ears or this horse pushes into the space, so to speak, in that moment, they're, they're demonstrating their old belief. And then I, I talk about the law of intensity. That's just kind of something that I think of, but energy, energy wise, if you're around somebody that's really grumpy and you're only a little bit happy, well, pretty soon you're going to be grumpy. And if you're around, if you're real happy, you know, and they're a little bit grumpy, well, pretty soon they're going to start picking up their mood. So the law of intensity is just this idea that whatever energy is is at the highest currency will affect those around you. Yeah, and, well, yours is affecting me because I'm, I'm <laughs> I think I'm a bit more bouncy than I was when we first started. <laughs> oh well, I'm glad. Um, and so then, if you can remove the emotional interpretation from the mare pin in her ears or the horse pushing into your space or whatever you're calling it, and you just create clear connection to how you'd like them to feel and not take it personal. The changes happen ridiculously fast. But the first thing we have to do is we have to release our old thinking. Without that, you're in bondage to that same pattern happening over and over again. And that's why you see people cycle in their life and in their horsemanship, right? Because again, we're talking about life philosophies now. We're not talking about horsemanship techniques. Um, The only techniques that seem to exist for me is understanding, and and Deb set this in pretty deep for me, the the biomechanics of bones, muscles, and tendons. They, They work like fulcrums you know, levers and pulleys. And so there's a way that that works correctly. But the beauty of it is, and this is a whole other story, but when you get into the biomechanics, when the biomechanics is in alignment, there is another energetic release. And so we can feel when the body's moving right. And you can also feel when the muscles are moving in tension. And I'm pretty, pretty big advocate that the mind, the thoughts of a horse store themselves in the molecular structure of the muscles. And we know that generally by saying, okay, this horse is anxious and you can see it, their top line's tight. And I think you can drop that down into layers of experience and the story of the horse and where they're holding it. And, you know, my style is, you know, specific to approaching that and trying to actually get to a place where we can actually get there with them and where they've stored those tensions. Um, but again, that's that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I think there's two ways that coming at, at stuff like that. Like I've, uh, I had an off the track thoroughbred a couple of years ago. That I, that I got from a, uh, a horse rescue and I went through all the groundwork stuff with him. He'd been a jumping horse before I got him after he was mm. an off the track thoroughbred. And, and apparently he was, he was quite forward, anxious and would get behind the vertical, like mm. basically put his chin on his chest sort of thing. And I started, I did uh, probably, I spent probably four or five months doing groundwork with him. Mm. He wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't have any bad behaviors. He just didn't have that softness inside him, you know, mm-hmm. he, he could, you know, he was functional, but I, I spent the time not getting him to do physical things, but getting him to right. turn loose inside. Mm-hmm. And then I started riding him in the round pen and I probably rode him 10 or 11 days at a walk in the round pen, just doing little things with him, uh, just on one rein only, no, no contact or anything. And then I, on the 12th day, I thought I'm going to pick up a trot. And when I picked up a trot in the round pen, he just stretched over his back mm-hmm. and hung his neck down and poked his little nose out. Mm-hmm. I thought I'll have a bit of a canter. He cantered around the same way. So I took him out in the big arena and I rode him and I 
videoed it and it put it on YouTube, like my off the track thoroughbred's first ride outside in the big arena. Mm. And he just swung his legs, was real mm. loose in the back and stretched over his top line. And I had a lot of dressage people that watched that clip comment mm. and said, oh, you must be really good with your aids at being able to ask it, <laughs> you know, as the left hind foot's mm-hmm. leading the ground, like squeeze <laughs> with your right ass cheek. And yeah, I think yeah. that would be the mechanic, the biomechanical way of getting them to relax. But I went, mm. I got him to relax. And the, bagu- the the biomechanics just worked mm-hmm. because of the relaxation. And I, yeah. and I think you can go at it. Mm-hmm. I don't think one way is wrong and one way is right. I think you sure. can go at it two different ways. But I tend to want to come at it from – I think that the physical takes care of itself. Like all those braces in there go away if you can get rid of the braces in the, in the mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a I, – I 100% agree. I think there's just pros and cons that come with each. And I find that, you know, you get the relational community, the ones that are seeking that connection – might not necessarily get those more technical perspectives of riding. And then you get the more technical people who can get really specific with those details and they love the details, but yet that can cause them to get maybe less attentive to the relational elements. Um, so I think there's kind of pros and cons with both. Um, but I find that that's the, that's the beauty is when you come from getting the horse to mentally trust you and get connected to your energy. Now you have to me, Energetic currency moving between a horse and a person is is the life force that allows the horses to feel comfortable to give their body. And that that's kind of taking that whole bit mind to feet versus feet to mind, you know, to a, the next level, which is which so so the so the back of a horse, I call the back the defensive muscles and the core being the relational muscles, the underline. So when you when a horse you, will can release you say, can you say that sorry if you're interrupting, can you say that again? No. Um, the back of a horse is their defensive muscles. So those are the mental representation of uncertainty, anxiety, fear in the horse. So when they're tight, they're tight in the back. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. exactly. The top line fires and it'll fire in various ways. It can tighten right at the sacrum. So their head can be round, but their sacrum is tight. So they're short in the stride. Um, and, but, but not until that, see the top line is, and this is why I believe this to be so beautiful in regards to relationship, because when when you get the when you get the mind, it's like the gateway to the body opens. And when they release their top line, because those top line muscles are big, they'll always overexert the underlying muscles. So the longest coli, the muscle underneath the spine, you know, the the big ones on the top line are always going to defensiveness will uh, or saving themselves will always take over. You know, lifting themselves and working with us. So it's very cool to me that relationally you have to earn the horse first to shut that top line off. And that would be an example of what you did. You spent the time to get that horse to trust you. So then now the gate's open for the horse to be shaped. And then to me, that's the beauty of it. So a general sense of calmness and relationship will generally cause a horse to get lower and turn that top line off. And then, then that's the fun of each unique confirmation. And it's the beauty for me of I've never been in any, in any discipline. You know, I, I come from this weird place of, I, I'm not even sure how I fit into the horse community, but it, just this desire of, of wanting to know exactly how each horse's different unique body wants to work. So some want a bit lower positions, some want higher positions. But the, the beauty of it is, is once that top line's off and the mind is open, now the body's free to work with you. And the next step is then to allow them to start becoming their own athletes. And the beauty of that is that, that, that now you can start using a bit more form and function, which is there's, there is some progression to – the classical schooling, I'm very inspired by, you know, the classical schooling of the horse, but trying to blend that specifically with not leaving the relational um, 
perspective, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, most certainly. And, you know, if when you read a lot of that old classical stuff, like mm-hmm. I, I remember uh, a number of years ago, Patrick King sent me an audio of Charles de Confey. Mm. And if you listen to that, mm-hmm. he's not talking about horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's, yeah, there's, there is so much like self-discipline involved in, in a, mm-hmm. a lot of that, you know. But the question just came to me then talking about that, you've, you said you're not uh, you're a non-disciplined type person, mm. but you have got a foot pretty firmly entrenched in both like the vaquero horsemanship mm-hmm. and classical dressage. And mm-hmm. I don't think those ideas are too far apart, are they? I, I think that they're the high schools. You know, it's really, I, I kind of look at that, right? And, and that was another thing that Deb said. There's always, there's the massive strain. There's kind of two seams of people. And there's a massive seam of people who just want to get things done. And they don't really care how. And then there's this other seam of people who are always seemingly drawn to higher ways. And that's been throughout history. So there's always, you know, if we search, we can always find throughout history a lineage of people who desired to represent deeper connections and, you know, ways that were more or less spoken about, I guess. And uh, so, so for me, I've always been drawn, I, you know, I'm, I'm funny because, you know, a lot of times some of my friends, are, they're cowboys, that's what they do. But I absolutely am lost by, by art, by the, the desire to bring out the best in something. So I, I just love art. I love, I love anybody who is doing something in a, in a form uh, of mastery, I guess, where, where mind and feel align, where technique and uh, beauty kind of blend together. And you see, boy, do we ever see that in horses? So the Vaquero style is a little bit like that stream of people in the cowboy world where, they, man, they wanted to get it right. And they wanted to understand what it meant to get a horse like the, you know, people look at stuff. And I think that's one of the things I feel quite compelled by is to remove the emotional interpretations behind gear and tack and recognize that it's not about the gear it's just about the the way it's used and no piece of equipment should be judged by poor use it should be judged by the master who made it and it's really a big deal and that removes all of the kind of dumping the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak about saying i don't like this or i won't use that and anytime people say that it's usually because they saw somebody use it in a less than educated way so for me the spade is like it's this beautiful high form of a horse getting to a place where they have the ability to carry themselves to support that. And there's, it's a sick, it's signals, right? So it's very inspiring to me. And then the classical work, it just uh, speaks for itself, the bullfighting. And, and actually when Deb, when I first sat down with Deb, the first thing she showed me was a video of a, a, an old, old video of somebody fighting a bull on a horse. And I know there's lots of opinions about that whole system and I, that's, that's another conversation, but, but the art of that guy riding that stinking horse made me cry. Just, just the level of connectivity and the way that horse moved and the way they're like, it just, it blew, it blew my mind. So yeah, it's, I feel like what I'm inspired by is I'm inspired by depth and I'm inspired by art. And I think art would be right. The mastery of understanding how the physical expresses itself when the, the energy's right. And so I, I love speaking to anybody on any tone that does something with, with a level of mastery, because I think that's, that's the stream we're talking about work when we're talking about kind of feeling like, holy smokes, it's affecting my wife and it's affecting my horses, but it's also going to draw you to anybody doing it, you know? And so that's why it's not just about horses. There is a stream that exists in that way. Have you ever read the book mastery by George Leonard? No, I have not. 
Hmm. You're you're bringing lots of new books to me. This is great. That one I <laughs> I had that one in my book podcast. It's not uh-huh. a very it's not a very thick book. It's actually a little thin mm-hmm. thin book. But yeah, it's, he was an Aikido. I I used uh-huh. to say Aikido, and now I've interviewed Mark Rashid. It's I Keto. Uh huh. Not Aikido. I right. uh, This guy was an Aikido master, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, he just talks about the concept of mastery at anything. Mm-hmm. And actually, Deb Bennett, did you ever uh, did you ever get uh, Eclectic Horseman magazine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Deb Bennett wrote an article in Eclectic mm-hmm. Horseman magazine about that book. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I have it actually on my bedside table right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Deb Deb talking about that exact book in yeah. Eclectic Horseman magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a book that Deb has. Um, it's called the Birdie Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read it? Have you seen that one? Yeah, it's a. Uh, the, the the one thing that I've always loved about Deb is when she gets into her place of Zen or whatever, and she's writing the, the, the way she expresses stuff. It's like, it's, it, it, it helps you touch something else. You know, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. She, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. So you mentioned, well, everybody who listens to the podcast know that I, uh, I send my guests 20 questions and they get to choose a number of different ones mm-hmm. to chat about within the podcast. And I didn't get your, your ones back, but you've already covered two of them. You said, you told me about mm-hmm. two books that you like, and then you covered mm-hmm. leadership. What other ones of those questions had you decided you might want to dive into? I, I really, I had a lot of fun. I sat down with my wife when we were drinking coffee, actually, and I printed it off and I brought it and we started talking with them. And I, I just thought it was so fun, you know, because we do different podcasts and um, there's different ways, you know, there's kind of the go off the cuff and just d- just let the energy guide you. And then, you know, the idea of questions and I, yeah, I, um, the one, one of the pieces that really got me was n- number three, where you said, if, if you could spread a message across the world, one that people would listen to, what would that message say? Um, and, and honestly, I think that we have just given a thorough synopsis of it is that I, I would hope to help people understand that no matter, no matter what it is that they're doing. And yes, we speak to horses all the time, but, but it's that they would recognize that there is, there is a relational way of existing in this life that develops connection and empowerment. And as we do or live within practices that allow us to get there more, and every relationship in our life starts to grow, our horsemanship will develop. And uh, so it's, it's just funny, right? And I think you're experiencing it too. It's like the, the real work we're doing to get better with our horses is, is, what, um, is what we're doing behind the scenes. It was inspiring to me, and I, and I struggled with this, and I saw many times where you would watch a really good horseman do something. They would have a technique, and they would um, then tell the students to go ahead and do that technique. And, and we all have seen it a million times. The horse doesn't look anything like it. The, the horse doesn't do anything similar to what the guy did. And it's frustrating to the student. It can be frustrating for the, for the instructor as well because they feel like they're not able to um, hand off their message or get people to have the same success. So I, I started this idea of, of this concept of what lies behind the master's hands. This, you know, and that was, became, a, became a real desire for me to understand. And because I watched it with Harry, you know, all the time you know, you see him touch a horse and do something and then you watch people and they would have a hard time. So I really wanted to recognize that. And I feel like that, that became a real modus operandi for me or a, or a passion was to know or be able to not, not just know, but also portray uh, or speak it. You know, what, what is it that's behind 
a master sense? What is the feel that is being emitted? And not just living within this idea that feel is you either have it or you don't, because I think that's, that can be a, a real struggle for a lot of people, but it is taught. It is understandable. It is a process and you can learn and you can reconnect, but, but feel reconnecting to feel is not uh, just a thing you do. It's, it's a way you are. And I think that's where, you know, when, when people get onto that. So I feel like, man, if I could, if I could give that message and allow people's lives to be blessed because of it and, you know, in the process of them getting better with their horses and getting out of trouble and going down the trail, you know, their, their marriages are better and their families are in a better place and they enjoy this world a little more. Man, seems like good stuff to me. Amazing stuff. You just said something about, uh, what did you say? It's about when they, when they change who they are or something like that. Is that what you just said? Uh, well, I guess kind of get caught up in it all, but, um, when, when a person gets to where they, they realize that changing what's going on within them is really the bigger blessing. It's not about changing your environment. There's a young man named Jake Ducey and he's, uh, like a motivational speaker type guy. And he he wrote a book when he was 20 that became a bestseller. And he's a bit of a, he, he was a, he was a, a, like a protege of, 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 uh, Jack Canefield. And he, he, like he's he's big on manifesting and he put it out there. He wanted to meet mm-hmm. Jack Canfield and somehow ended up sitting next to him at a dinner. <laughs> and kind of like you and you and Harry, he, he kind mm. of got taken under Jack's wing. But he had a and I haven't seen him around social media much for a couple of years, but a few years ago he had this uh bit of a you know, it was a five minute talk and he was talking about manifesting stuff, but he said, You don't get what you want. Mm. You get who you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, no. it's not thinking about what I, yes, manifesting is not so much about just putting out there what you want. You've mm-hmm. got to be the embodiment of that thing. You, you know, yeah. you don't get what you want, you mm-hmm. get who you are. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to think awesome. about that one for a while when I first heard that, but yeah, it eventually settled. Well, the challenge of that is, oh my goodness, now you got you got to actually look inside and say, what are you? And I think, boy, that's the big, I honestly see people, you know, we talked a little bit about trying to convince people, but I, I see that's where people make their judgments on me. You know, whether I'm going to be somebody they care to listen to or not is based on what they do with that very statement. You know, when I say to people, you know, that, that what we're doing inside has some bearing on what's happening with your horse. That's, a, you know, if somebody says, okay, and they swallow that, boy, that's going to mean I might have to take some responsibility in how I speak to my wife. That might mean that the way I am with my employees or the people I work with is going to change because now I've got to start taking responsibility. And I find that that, that right there, boy, when you can swallow that and you can see that it's not a curse, it's a blessing and that you can, you can manifest and change your entire environment. And the beauty of it is, is I think people get so caught on, on trying to manifest something more. But when you get to a place where you can manifest peace and you can manifest calmness, all the other stuff just seems to start happening because you're no longer blocking anything energetically. You're not, you're not living. And most people were living as a block because we're so defensive. You know, I, I see that, I see that over and over and it's the horses don't feel safe with you because you're in self-preservation as well. So it's hard for them when they are frequency picker uppers, you know, they're just thick picking up what you're laying down energetically for them to be feeling that it's hard for them to find peace. So it's just so beautiful when, when people start getting it. Man, it, it does it change everything. Yeah, over the years, I, you know, I've met some people at clinics that I, that I used to think, you know what, you're never going to get this. Mm. You probably should get a cat. 
mm-hmm. preferably an outside cat. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but now I feel <laughs> that way. Uh-huh. Now I know why they can't, because they could do the technique and it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And now I know why, because mm-hmm. of what's going on in here. And, and so you yeah. know, it's just, it's just incongruency where their outside mm-hmm. actions and yeah. their insides are not lined up. And, and so these days I'm just really big on having people understand that because it's, yeah. it's kind of like, here you go. I've handed you the, the key mm-hmm. to the, the, you know, here's, mm-hmm. here's the solution right here. There mm-hmm. is a solution instead mm-hmm. of it. Oh God, I'm just not good with horses or, or whatever it is. It's like, Hey, it's, 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 it's right here. Here's the solution. Yeah. There, there is an end in sight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it's easy, sure, but it's not a mystery anymore. Right. And you don't need an outside cat. <laughs> oh, awesome. Hey, well, and, and that's right because, and I found this is a thing too. I see this with horses. Some of these horses that are so wound up and they're so expressive. It's because they desire peace more and they can't tolerate it when it's not there. So they're not more misbehaved. They just desire things. They desire that calmness more and they can't settle when it's not present. And I see people like that too. Some of these people that seem so hard to kind of handle, man, they desire it. They just don't have any direction. They don't know how to channel their energy or what to do with it. So if we keep talking about a technique of them doing a technique and their energy looks like a wasp nest with a rock thrown through it, they're never going to make a technique look any better or work because they, they need to go where they need to go. And if we can start seeing that some of the things our horses are, are guiding us to, and this is where I see them as amazing guides, and they're guiding us and they're showing us that, that the energy is crazy right now. And when we can see that, we can go internal and, and start trying to get ourselves back. And that's where they're leading us. You know, I think of it all the time. You know, Our horses are standing out there eating grass, calm, enjoying each other. And then here we come. You know, and, and we've got energy swarming like crazy, you know, and, and then we wonder why the horse don't want to be caught or why they're not so hot about, you know, getting tied up or whatever, you know, and it just, it just changes it. So that you see people blessed merely by just pausing before you go, just pausing and getting yourself sorted. But wow, if we could just make that a way of life, right? Wake up in the morning and that's, you now I've got my own practices now. I've got, you know, things I do for myself because, you know, I know the importance of, of, kind of getting inside myself and setting a tone for how I would like to move my energy in the day and, and the way I would like to feel and how I'd like to interact with you and with my horses and everything else I'm doing. You know, I, I think we're all, we're all somewhat similar. All humans are somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. And I've fallen into the trap recently of what people tend to do with their horses, where they do the work for a while and it starts going good. So then they stop doing the work and then Mm -hmm. they just start, you know, they've made all these deposits and they just start making Mm -hmm. withdrawals and that they, and I feel like I've done that with myself to where I, you know, I had a, a, um, you know, a a consistent meditation practice. I've been taking cold showers for a couple of years now, Mm -hmm. Um, but I've also got an ice bath. I've got a Mm -hmm. chest freezer full of water. Yeah, and he, you know, and every there's a way you can plumb that thing to where it runs like a swimming pool, to where it's got a filter and all that stuff. But okay. I'm not that technical, so I basically mm-hmm. have to empty it out every couple of weeks and then replace the water. And here a little mm. while ago, I emptied it out and haven't replaced it. And yeah, I've been feeling pretty good, so you know, I haven't been meditating mm. regularly, and and I'm it's just starting to all creep mm. back on I me. Mean, uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I can't, you can't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, when, I've talked about this in the podcast before, but my dad was a, a bull rider. Mm-hmm. He actually rode bulls and bronx about back to horses, but he went to the NFR in Australia uh, twice in the bull riding. But when I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be a bull rider until I actually 
you know, I rode calves and junior steers and junior bulls. Mm-hmm. And then I got on two full size bulls and realized I'm probably not cut out for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've always been quite a fan of that. So there's a guy, I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Gary Lefew. Uh, that name sounds familiar. So Gary Lefew was a world champion bull rider back in the mm. late 60s, early 70s. Mm. And he stumbled upon a book by, uh, by uh, I forget what the guy's name is, but it's called Psycho-Cybernetics. And so he really got into the mindset of positive thinking and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And he basically, you know, he's the he's the bull riding guru. You know, anybody who's a world champion bull rider now has been to to Gary Lefew's place. It's in mm-hmm. Santa Maria, which is about mm, mm-hmm. two and a half, three hours just south of us here. And he's, mm-hmm. he's like the guru. Mm-hmm. And he talks, uh, uh, I remember seeing one of his talks one time about, about bull riding, but he said uh, this, he told this story. He said, this guy goes to Buddha to the top of the mountain and says to Buddha, Buddha, how do I become enlightened? And Buddha said, chop wood and carry water. Mm-hmm. The guy goes down the mountain, he chops wood and carries water for 10 years and, he's still not enlightened. So he trudges back up the mountain and says to Buddha, Buddha, uh, I've been doing it for 10 years. How do I become enlightened? And uh, Buddha says, chop wood and carry water. So he goes back and he chops wood and carries water for another 10 years and he reaches enlightenment. Now what? So he marches up the hill and he says to Buddha, Buddha, I am now enlightened. Now what do I do? And Buddha says, chop wood and carry water. (laughs) And, 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 and Gary Lefew is a bull riding coach and he spouts, you know, Buddhist philosophies like that. It's pretty funny, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just do the work, you know, in that book mastery. And this, mm-hmm. this ties back to like the way Tom Dorrance looked at things. Tom Dorrance is very process oriented, not mm-hmm. outcome oriented. And in that book mastery, yeah. they talk about the most spiritual, the ancient Hindu practices, which was called karma yoga. And karma yoga is applying yourself to a task with no thought as to the outcome of that task. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just being present in, mm-hmm. in the moment and doing stuff. And we've got a young girl from Colorado that works for us now. She's been here for about a month and she bought her own horse with her. And it took me a while to kind of figure out, I mean, she's, she's broken, you know, fair way along. And it took me a while to figure out what she should do next. But I said, okay, I want you to do this exercise. And she did it every day for about mm-hmm. five days and the first few days that mare just looked like a wreck i said just just keep doing that mm-hmm. over and over and after about six days the horse was completely different and she said i i, I kept doubting myself like mm-hmm. like this is not working it's and mm-hmm. in that book mastery he talks about when you're learning something new when you first learn something new you get this huge upward spurt because you used to know nothing about it now you know mm-hmm. something about it and then there's a, a drop down but then there's this long, flat yeah. plateau and you're on the plateau for a long time. You're not getting anywhere. And what you're doing is you're building up the skill you're going to need to make the next upward surge. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to drop off a bit and then you're going to be on the plateau. And so I explained to her, I said, you were on the plateau. Mm-hmm. And I said, the, the thing about that is you have to have a mentor to tell you you're on the right track because you don't mm-hmm. want to be, you know, what's the re- definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over and expecting the results yeah. to change unless yeah. you know they will change. Right. That I was, I was, and I said, that's a, you know, that's almost like a spiritual practice with horses is, mm-hmm. is, is that, and I said, um, and I showed her, uh, some pictures of some Buddhist sand paintings. You ever seen the sand paintings that the monks will do? They will spend days making mm-hmm. these beautiful, intricate sand paintings on the ground, mm-hmm. different colored sand yeah, hours and painstaking hours. And when they get done, they stand up and they kick it all with their feet. 
<laughs> it's like painting the roof of the Sistine Chapel mm-hmm. and then whitewashing right. over it, you know. Yeah, and yeah. It's just that it's that practice of being able to let go yeah. of yeah. of of that. You know, you, you think yeah. I did it, now it's got to stay there for other people to look at. And it's just like, no, yeah. just, you're just going to yeah. be able to let go of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hear you. I feel like for me, it's been so much about the the pra- the the power of the energy explodes. You might say into change in the world when we get to a place where we're able to navigate within ourselves and you know create create that calm state and create that get to that place where we are able to be with ourselves and you know work towards guiding our energy to emotions we desire to feel. And what happens, I find a lot of people are doing that specifically to try to change their life scenario, change their financial scenario, change, you know, that there's always this motive. And then, and then what happens, you're right, that spike happens and some life changes. And then, wow, sweet, I got what I want. It's like a little bit like a deposit, I put the money down, and now I got the thing. And, and then, you know, it's can be, it can be hard to, uh, you know, see it as and I as this, I guess the way is it's more of like, the, the goal is not about the thing that we're getting out of it. It's more about getting to a place where you live inside of that state. And when you do, boy, that's, that's the heartbeat behind, you know, epic, epic change in multiple areas. And that's not to say that it's not good to, you know, work towards things, certain stuff, you know, try to envision the future that you would like to have. I think that's wonderful, but it can't be the motivating desire. Because now we're missing out on the deeper points, which, which to me, when we hit that deeper point, that's what elevates us into that universal language where we can actually hear. Because now we're still enough to be present versus so motivated by a certain endpoint. And now I feel like we miss out on a lot of stuff. So that's, that's honestly been my journey. So I feel like I'm, man, I've been this thing with my horses where, you know, we're just, we're just living, man. We're just living and we're doing lots of fun stuff, but just enjoying it, right? And yeah, changes, changes everything. I can tell you're enjoying it. Like you guys at home, you're only getting the, I mean, sure. I'm sure you're getting the energy off Josh's voice and stuff, but like, I'm, I'm looking at his eyes light up and like his face. So like this, this guy's high on life. I tell you. Um, <laughs> so Josh, how do people find out more about you? Where do they, where do they find out about you? What do you, what's all your, what's all your details? Yeah, you know, I, uh, joshnickel.com, that's our, my website. Um, we've, uh, I've, been, I've been teaching clinics now. I've spent most of my time in Canada. I've, I've not really had any desire to – I'm not much of a big traveler, so I've ended up spending – been super busy in Canada. I've spent most of my time there. Um, then we developed our website, so we've got lots of content on the website. Got a membership site of my own there that, that just – I think you know how it goes, right? You end up finding that to track – deeply with people you can't just see them once or twice a year so it ends up inspiring us to try to create content that people can track so we've got got that on my website um and uh then you know we're we were presence on facebook you know i've got a group um and just yeah trying to trying to create opportunities for for people to connect and hear what we've got to say and and then be able to feather their own learning at their own rate so uh, yeah, what's Josh the what's the facebook thing is it a horseman's pursuit or is it it is yeah is it Josh Nickel, a horseman's pursuit, or a horseman's pursuit, Josh Nickel? What is it? Uh, the group is a horseman's pursuit. Um, my business page is Josh Nickel, horseman's pursuit. So you can follow the business page, um, and you just get kind of the posts that I make. But the dialogue in the group is a horseman's pursuit. Okay. 
Perfect. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I think you, uh, you're, you're a game changer. You are, you are changing the world. I truly believe that. I think you're doing a great stuff out there. Well, that means a lot to me to hear you say, I appreciate that. And I, I'm just privileged to be on here with you and, and to share space. I feel like this is these types of conversations um, to me are what life's all about. So I just appreciate you and uh, thankful for all you're doing, doing in the world as well. Yeah, these conversations, these, you know, the first time I had a conversation, anything like this, I was like, wow, I've never had a conversation like that in my entire life. <laughs> now I find, now I find a habit with strangers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think it's, you, you change that energy from that, that right. all to that open energy, but, but yeah, they are the conversations and I, I cherish them. And I'm certainly going to cherish this one. Uh, thank you guys at home for joining us on I was going to say a horseman's pursuit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for joining me on the Journey On podcast, and we'll uh, catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks, Josh. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.